0: Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. We are joined again by Trent Horn for his third appearance, surpassing Father Gregory Pine, matching John DeRosa and eclipsed only by Pat Flynn at four appearances, I believe. Recently, he sat down with economist and Catholic Tony Annette to dialogue slash debate about the topic of climate change. So welcome back, Trent. How do you feel like the discussion went overall?
1: Well, I thought the discussion went very well. Uh, It's funny, I had asked Michael Lofton to uh, make it a moderated dialogue, uh, but Michael decided just to sit it out and let Tony and I just discuss without moderation. And it turned out fine. I thought we were both very cordial with each other. But I think for anyone watching who wasn't already committed to Tony's position, uh, I think it really revealed that that position is based on Assertions that are very popular in media, but without willing to follow data to back it up. And it really trades in what I would call alarmism. Uh, And it also is not willing, it's not willing to answer hard questions. And I think it's also uh, often engages in what we would call magical thinking uh, to try to solve problems. I think that's very evident in Tony's uh, clinging idea that wind and solar are the future main power sources for humanity and things like that. So there are certain areas I would have liked to have discussed a little bit more other points I would have wanted to make. Uh, It's kind of hard in those settings without a moderator. You don't want to. My wife kind of criticized me. You let him talk too much. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) I'd rather do that, though, than come off like a jerk who's always interrupting the other person. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: I was really excited that you were going to be debating an economist. I kind of assumed he would be getting into the nuts and bolts of Of different solutions, that he'd be running out costs, that he would be applying economic models to seeing what would scale, what wouldn't scale. But he seemed to be uh, focusing on average costs thus far of deploying, say, solar and wind. And I'm like, okay, you're an economist. I really thought you would bring in the marginal cost of deploying the next solar or wind unit, right? Because we're going to have a declining marginal utility as we. Use the best places for wind and solar first, as we mine the easiest minerals first. And then over time, it might actually be much more difficult to scale. So I was hoping that he would offer a little bit of insight there, give us a little bit of modeling, and maybe um, put forth some type of plan that would address something like that.
1: Yeah, it just seemed to me that. And he is the, the genesis for this dialogue was really that I've seen Tony make these claims. It's hard. I really thought of him as more of a careful thinker when Cathenomics first came out. But seeing him on social media regurgitate basically CNN and MSNBC talking points, it's been sad to see that the the positions that he takes. and also the 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 things that he will tweet and share. I'm always I was boggled after the debate. He continued to share things about. Energy, like showing charts from other countries saying, uh, "Look, it's inevitable. They're they're all renewable energy." And I, w- you know, pointing to these other countries and I was saying, "Tony, did you not even read the beyond this tweet you're sharing? The energy profiles of these countries that the renewables are basically nuclear and hydro. So fossil mm-hmm. fuels for one thing. But well, one reason I wanted to talk to him, what I basically said, we need to talk, was he said that. Uh, Catholics, he said that the government can ban gas-powered cars after 2035 for the common good. Now, in one sense, yes, they can. They can do anything within their legislative powers the courts let them do. Should they do it? Well, that's a cost-benefit analysis that we have to make. And so I was hoping we could talk about that more, seeing that that doesn't make sense at all. What some of these people will do is they'll say, well, are you saying we shouldn't have any regulations on cars? You know, we have catalytic converters? and I'll say, yeah, that makes sense. It's not a very expensive part and it's good for the environment. But to ban internal combustion engines in 2035, the new sale of them is silly because it's hardly going to do any good. Even if we all switched over to electric, only 10% of oil consumption would go down. And it's going to be massive costs that are incurred in doing. I wanted to talk about that more because it just that there's so many silly things in. And and I agree, climate change does have negative effects. So I think it would be nice to move to cleaner forms of energy. But in every proposal you make, there are going to be trade offs. There are going to be costs. And he just didn't want to look at the costs for any of them of trying to go carbon neutral by like 2050. One would be the fossil fuel. Power production problem, the electric vehicle problem. I wanted to, we didn't talk about as much that I wanted to really talk about. It, it's so baffling me. Like for a, a poor person, electric vehicles cost twelve thousand dollars more. You have to replace the battery more often, which is like buying a new car. When I was poor, like when we when Laura and I started out, we we lived in an apartment. We had to park on the street. How could we have charged our mandated electric vehicle? When we were always trying to find street parking, like, and nobody can give me answers to these questions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, economics is supposed to be about trade-offs, and it's it's difficult because there's trade-offs that we see, and then there's trade-offs that we don't see. It's very easy to see new electric cars being deployed and feeling like, oh, we must be doing something good for the environment. It's very hard to see the impact on other environments. That um that have to deal with with mountaintop removal mining and and uh, exploring for all sorts of minerals, which are typically in <laughs> places which don't have environmental regulation. Oh my
1: my gosh, it's, it's awful in China and the Congo, mm-hmm. which I point I think I got across well in the discussion. Uh, trying to get lithium and the rare earth metals for these materials, we're we're simply not going to be able to get the, get as much. I was also Pete, like he is continually and still today beating the drum that solar is this cheap thing. And yes, photovoltaic solar cells have gotten much cheaper in the past 10 years. But as I said in the discussion, that's like saying it's cheaper to rent a trailer than a truck. That's true. It is cheaper mm-hmm. to rent a trailer. But a trailer can't pull things by itself. There is, And he had, he had his mindset. oh, well, Africa skipped landlines and went to cell phones. So I'm sure they'll figure out a way to be 100% solar and wind, even though no other country on Earth does that.
0: Yeah. And then you also brought up slavery, which I feel like we were all agreed in the world that slavery
1: was a terrible evil.
0: Right. And yet it's slave labor in large part that is producing.
1: That's right. um,
0: Not just the solar panels, but you mentioned in Africa, some of the lithium mines. There is a huge find that a supposedly um, mechanized mine was actually staffed by child laborers. Right. So we need to have that on the table. I think that's something that's fixable. But we need to be clear eyed that today the next solar panel is not going to be as clean as we imagine, is not going to be free of slave labor. We need to make an intelligent choice if we're going to try to deploy that at scale.
1: Yeah. And for me. When when it comes to this issue of climate change and Catholics, Catholics are free to believe a wide variety of things. Just don't contradict church teaching by saying, "Okay, we need birth control and abortion to combat climate change." Like that's clearly against church teaching. Other stuff you want to put up a, if you want to put up a solar panel to feel better about yourself, fine. But odds are you're really not doing that much given everything that's involved in creating it. In 25 years, when the panel stop is not efficient enough to justify its use, throwing it away is going to be an ecological nightmare because it has toxic materials within it that you can't really put in landfills. But you've got people who are saying, I was reading an article from The Reporter or something like that, saying about dioceses that don't care about climate change. They're disobeying the Pope because their churches aren't getting solar panels, which which I think is silly. Like I lived in California. Some of the churches there, yeah, it makes sense probably to get solar panels if you live in San Diego or something like that, or maybe another sunny part of the country. But in a lot of other places, it is simply not worth The cost. Like you have Tony praising this wind and solar, but he's not willing to grapple with the intermittency problem. Like when I live out here in Texas, a lot of times, hey, it's pretty, when I lived in Kansas, especially, it's pretty cloudy during the winter. You're not going to get sun. Like when I lived in California, we were only able to, we might have barely had enough power for our home during a California summer, but that was because we lived in a 1,200 square foot home. We would not have been able by sun alone to charge electric vehicles, for example. Uh, So once again, it's just it's costs and it's it's magical thinking that they're they're not thinking about.
0: Yeah, there's definitely the cost of deploying the solar. But
1: as you said, there has to be either a backup generator or a
0: battery system. And then there's a third thing, which I think people don't quite talk about enough, and that is when you really scale these things it's often in the middle of nowhere. People are putting solar panels in the desert or they wanna put in North Dakota uh, wind turbines. And that is a great place to put those forms of power. The issue is getting the power onto the grid. Um, Quick story, I was in a electrical supply place and I was buying something. And uh, while I was waiting for them to get stuff, they bring out this cross section that's one inch thick of a cable and they hand it to me. It probably weighed, I don't know, 30 pounds. And it's got all these copper wires going through it. And they said, this is a one inch slice of the wire that goes from one of the local power plants into the city. Wow. Do you want to know how much it costs? One inch, Trent. I can't. $700.
1: For an inch.
0: For an inch. Okay. So when we talk about moving power say a hundred miles well that's not that far i mean think about how far that would get you in north dakota <laughs> not that far certainly not to new york or something right or chicago or any other giant hub um a hundred miles of I, I, that particular cable is about four and a half billion dollars yeah
1: I, I just saw here one i just did the math one mile one mile is 42 million dollars wow yep there you go so multiple mile 100 and
0: boom so that needs to be on the table. We need to talk about that. And then what's going to happen when we start buying up copper in order to do this, in order to move our grid from its present uh, point of uh, electrical creation to this new, very distant place, say the offshore um, you know, wind farms? How are we going to get that over? And what's the next what's cost? What's I will tell you
1: cost? what is going to make me mad about all of this. And I'm glad I brought up COVID in our discussion because I think it's very spot on Now, like with COVID, there are three groups of people there were the alarm there were alarmists denialists and realists so an alarmist is someone's like this is going to kill everybody we got to stay in our homes forever and the denialists who say it's a hoax this isn't real this is just the flu and the realists who would say well this is more serious than the flu for a particular section of the population much more serious than the flu we do need to do something about it but it's not catastrophic that doesn't justify draconian lockdowns. I mean, you had people during that time who, who wanted to basically, in, people who refused to wear a mask or get vaccinated, they, they wanted to put them in concentration camps. People were literally saying that on the news. You're a threat to others and you should be imprisoned. And then later, when it turns out, oh, vaccines don't prevent transmission and people who, groups that didn't do lockdowns, fare just as fine, if not better, no apologies. No, uh, we were so sorry. We ruined a lot of people's lives just pretending like it never happened. And, and just, we want a pandemic. I remember that article in The Atlantic. We have to declare a pandemic amnesty. No, we don't. We have to hold people accountable whose alarmism harmed people and never let that happen again and shame them for what they did. And I feel like the same thing is going to happen with climate change. We're going to get to 2050 and we're gonna, you're going to have some people, some places, banning gas stoves, depriving us of cars, making people's lives miserable. And then they'll say, oh, it turns out, We actually didn't need to do all this. Uh, The things we spent money on were a waste, but not owning up to their mistake, just like with COVID, even though, and the rest of us saying, we told you so, and them just plugging their ears and not listening. That's what really kind of grinds my gears. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I went through some of the IPC uh, data in a a podcast on climate change, and I looked at um, what the expectations for growth are, and I compared those two side by side to kind of make the point that we're choosing two things at once. I mean, we are choosing a lower growth rate if we're choosing more spending on, on climate stuff now. And there's a lot of people who want to tank growth in the future by going completely green today. And that's just ignoring vast amounts of human suffering that would result. Um, And again, it's just simply invisible when we talk, I mean, with, I like to connect this with the lockdowns, because when we had the lockdowns, we were very much inconvenienced. It was a bother, but it crushed. We went back 25 years in global poverty in a year. Yeah. Yeah. there were there were families that couldn't feed their children because of the lockdowns, not because of the virus, but because the engines of growth, the giant markets in the West all of a sudden scaled back. And that meant that trading opportunities with the rich West dried up which meant people that were at $2 a day poverty were at no dollar a day poverty. And when we try to make these other big risky transitions to uh, green energy and we're willing to tank growth, we have to realize we're tanking growth not just for the rich west but for the developing countries who are reliant on that growth.
1: Right, and the, and the idea here is just plugging your ears to it. I saw a tweet actually and I haven't I've stopped responding because it seems like Tony just can't give the debate up probably because he feels like it didn't go as well. If you look in the comments section, he keeps tagging me and saying things like, look at this and look at these awful forest fires in Canada. This is climate change, Trent Horn. I'm like, we've had forest fires for hundreds of years. Uh, uh, You know, the settlers in the U.S. talked about huge forest fires that would take place every year that the Native Americans would cause. That's a part of life. Now, is it possible climate change could make them worse in some respects yes but that doesn't follow oh things are getting a little bit worse with forest fires our air quality he's like i live we have the worst air quality now in new york well guess what tony people in africa who are burning dung in their uh homes have far worse air quality why because they don't have a, a coal-fired power plant that could just send them electricity instead of them bur- it's this idea that people will think the choice is between pristine solar and wind versus dirty coal in a lot of places no that's that's not the choice the choice is between a relatively clean coal-fired power plant you could put scrubbers in it does it pollute yeah it doesn't pollute as much as people who burn wood within their own homes day in and day out or animal dung what about those people and the air quality for them oh it doesn't matter it's about the whole the whole world so i I think the other thing that makes me mad when this comes up if you like. Tony will say, look at this forest fire, look at this disaster, this hurricane, it's climate change, and it's your fault. But then no one will say, oh, we had a very temperate summer last year, or a temperate winter, we had a temperate winter, or hey, we had a larger growing season in this northern latitude. So like climate change, it's always, if a bad thing happens, it's climate change's fault. If a good thing happens, it's just part of the of mother nature that we should always respect. So it's, it's, it's always like you can't win.
0: Right. You made the point that as far as death from weather events, it, it's declined drastically. And that's simply because
1: we're more wealthy. Yes. 98 percent climate death reduction in the past 100 years. Mm-hmm. That is it, it's because of fossil fuels. There's no other explanation.
0: Right. And I would point people to the Copenhagen consensus. I'm sure you're familiar with that, where there's some really good work on that. I think you probably were referencing them when you talked about the cold deaths versus the heat deaths. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that's something we need to look at the positive and the negative at the same time. And there's often this idea that climate change is a entirely negative and B, that if we don't throw everything in the kitchen sink at it and basically make a sacrifice of every other conceivable problem to solving this problem, then we're somehow like morally, um, morally corrupt for that. But my my point with this is that that's just not how you actually deal with creation as evidenced by god in the book of genesis when he's making he he makes one thing say the waters and then he says these are good then he moves to the next and he makes skies and he says those are good then he makes the next and the next and the next and then in the end it's very good and very good not perfect he rests so when we're dealing with stuff in creation i think that's what we need to have in mind should we address some climate related things Mm -hmm. i think we should do a good job not a very good job and not a perfect job and then we should address poverty and we should do a good job and then move to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing because there is a point of diminishing returns and in the end we're not going to reach utopia we can hope that we can co-create with god a very good world and that's about it
1: right and we we are not gods we we do our best to make the trade-offs with the materials and choices that we have uh, it doesn't mean we should have unfettered individualism or anything like that. The earth is still a common good. So I guess it's hard for me is that people will want two extremes on this. They'll deny climate change at all, or say we have no moral responsibilities, or they'll be alarmists. And I would just promote a more realist uh, opinion on the matter. Yep. How about just cut the easiest to
0: cut carbon and allow other peoples to emit in the places that they need to the most?
1: And, right and
0: we'll move on to other things
1: get them on the path of development and they won't stay there forever if you get them to coal they'll eventually move to oil they'll move to natural gas as they increase in wealth they'll be able to afford because in in africa you are reading in the congo and other places where they need uh power i was reading an article recently about the threat to on animal preserves in the congo uh is from people who are going there onto the lands to get charcoal
0: Wow! Yeah, <laughs> sorry, gorillas. Yeah, there's actually a a name for this principle that there's kind of this you, right at the very, very extreme of poverty, you have people just right. uh, they Not have nothing far like... away. Oh, I'm I think nope. I just missed some of you. No, go ahead. Oh, you're back. <laughs> yeah, so there's actually a, a name. It's escaping me now. But talking about how people who are the most poor. They, they can't actually make much carbon. They can't make that much pollution. As they get a bit wealthier, then they spike in pollution. Then as they become rich,
1: they come back down again. Right, and so think, if, you, if you give them oil, uh, you give them coal get them a coal-fired plant, you'll get them <laughs> richer. And then because there is in the middle of Africa, they could build a giant dam there that would create a ton of hydroelectricity, but they don't have the capital for to invest in something like that uh, that's not going to make as much money versus if you're uh drilling for oil for example or coal mining you you know they're companies that will be able to make a lot of money off that and still divert things to locals to be able to do that but people they just want to rush to the end give them solar panels and wind turbines sorry you can't build a stable electrical grid just from those things
0: you know we, we talked about trade-offs i'm i'm slowly loading in my mind and remembering a uh, a wonderful trade-off that um i think i've talked about earlier in the podcast or in another podcast and that is the Paris Climate Accords, which came up a number of times in your discussion, the cost for the U.S. to stay in the Paris Climate Accords from, I think it's 2019 up to 2040, is it's in the orders of trillions. And then to go to the end of the, the, the century, it's even higher. But it was, um, let's say, I think 4 or $5 trillion. The amount of benefit we get from the U.S., going to the Paris climate accord trend projected trend versus the current trend will cause a difference in global average temperatures at the end of the century of 0.015 degrees 0.015 degrees. And the amount of money I looked at the average again, this is average, not the, the marginal cost. Once we tried to scale this, but just for sake of our argument, I looked at the average sales in Brazil for, rainforest land. And for the cost of being in the Paris Climate Accords until 2040, that same cost, we could preserve the entirety of the Amazon rainforest. We could purchase it at the market price. And that could actually, I mean, that's an enormous difference. Compare that, make that trade off versus right. the point zero one
1: it Fine. does not yeah degrees. it doesn't, doesn't matter it doesn't matter to them because a lot of them are zealots it's more about appearing to look good than actually doing good that's why i think it was very damning when i asked tony in our discussion what would ha- if we go carbon neutral how much will it cost and how much would that affect global temperatures and he could not give an answer to that question well oh, that's a-, a vital question a lot but i'm like you're an economist you can't even give me The cost related to it, the idea is we should just do it. And I asked him, like, well, what will have a catastrophe? Well, what exactly would happen? He gave some statistic on crop yield, which I would say is not correct, because I showed how actually in the past 30 years, we've have more trees now overall than we did 30 years ago. Uh, But he can't, you know, you hear these once again, that's typical of alarmism. Uh, Here's what's going to happen. It's going to be awful, but no one can tell me specifics. The IPCC, when they put it out, they just say, oh, well, we'll have the layperson thinks if global temperatures rise by two or three degrees celsius it's the end of the world but the actual people involved with the experts would just say it will be economic harm and they disagree how much there would be it would just be like people in the future who would normally be four times wealthier than us are only going to be three times wealthier
0: oh That's boohoo poor things yeah yeah, I, it, recently I saw an article that said, and I, I just laughed at it, I, I couldn't even bring myself to click it, that the rich world owes the poor world 192, which I love the specificity, $192 trillion to account for climate damage. I thought that was a, a hilarious specific and uh, and ridiculously Not 200 number. trillion, that would... No, 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 no. No, this is a science. Trent, Trent, this is science. It's one ninety two trillion. out. you
1: hear this, that for them, they can blame anything like Tony tried to blame the Syrian conflict on climate change. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what caused the, the conflict. So everybody who's harmed in Syria, the rich must pay to them because there couldn't be any other proximate causes for the Syrian civil war.
0: Right. And then it, there couldn't be any benefit from us having used fossil fuels. That's what I like to bring up is it, they actually received a package of good and bad things from the West becoming wealthy. So part of the package was climate change, an increase in global average uh, temperatures over the long term. Mm-hmm. But they also received things like vaccines and prenatal vitamins and basic health care and antibiotics to the point where it used to be that half of your children would die right. before the age of what, five? Five. So I would ask them, would you trade the climate change for a few deaths of your children? Go ahead and point out which children you would let suffer and die in order to have a slightly lower temperature by the end of your lifetime. I suspect that 100% of people in poorer nations will say, in aggregate, we are very happy that the West became wealthy, that they used fossil fuels. Yes, the climate is warming, but we have massive markets which we can profitably trade into. We have incredible technologies which make our lives better. We have children who live and we have lives right. with great economic optimism. That's the actual thing we gave them. And if anything, I think they owe us 190 $3 trillion, right? That's right. My the, calculation. Yeah, uh,
1: no, it, it's right. that, it, And it's amazing for an economist to have this attitude as, as he does that you're unwilling to look at all of the costs, uh, including the hidden costs, including the opportunity costs. There's only working at one thing. That's why one of my tweets after the debate, when Tony kept going on and on, I said, when uh, climate change is your hammer, Everything looks like a nail that we 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 have to stop this any way that we can without looking at all of the the costs you know that are involved. So there you go.
0: absolutely. So I kind of want to pivot to the more Catholic part of the conversation, which sure. I thought was interesting. And that was the you, you seem to disagree about how authoritative or important or what type of relationship we need to have to prudential judgments by the Magisterium. He seemed to say that, well, prudence is a virtue. They're protected sure. by the Holy Spirit to guide the church. They that would be, We would include prudential judgments in there, even if they're not definitive. This is a prudential judgment. Seems to be the trend of uh, Pope Francis and, and the Magisterium writ large. So, yeah, we need to go along with what they are saying about climate change.
1: Well, it was strange because he had to kind of grit his teeth and admit that the policy proposals in Laudato Si. Such as promoting solar power, for example, transitioning away from fossil fuels and promoting solar power. The, the energy of the sun was in Laudato si a lot. No mention of nuclear, except in one negative instance, but no, no mention of nuclear being a fuel that we should promote. Uh, and I really do, it, that one I feel like is the mark of zealotry and environmental worship. That Tony's big thing was, well, nuclear is too expensive. You're right. And this was something I said in the debate briefly, but didn't want to get into the weeds. Part of that is the discounting rate of how when you deal with capital loans and things like that, the value of something and how it's factored in over time, that it'll have less value 30 or 40 years into the future for its financing, blah, 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 blah. That it's really very it's far too high for nuclear plants. It makes them more expensive. The regulation makes them more expensive since the 70s. You could actually build them a lot cheaper. But but seeing even him saying, "Oh, well, we, I asked him, should we do nuclear and solar and wind have their place rather than solar and wind and nuclear has its place?" No, I, I wouldn't say so. The point was, so I asked him, you know, okay, has the Pope said there's a date we should be carbon neutral? And he had to admit, no, he he hasn't said that. So he had to grit his teeth and admit, yeah, what, what how reducing fossil fuels, what we should transition to, these are prudential judgments. Now he's correct that a Prudential judgment doesn't mean you can believe anything you want without criticism. You can make a very poor prudential judgment and be held accountable for that. My point was that the levels of assent we give to church teaching, like dogma, you, if you don't assent to that teaching, you are in a state of grave sin. If you deny the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, Uh, if there are other teachings that are not dogma, like just doctrine. uh, So teaching like, for example, that the soul is created by God, and doesn't come from each of our parents. There, there are theologians that believe that, more Protestants than Catholic. There were church fathers who believed it. That's the doctrine of the church. You don't believe it, you may not be in sin as long as you're not actively opposing it, but you still have to give religious submission a mind and will. But the question of what should we do in the world to make the world better, that we don't. there's not an easy answer to that. And the church admits in Donum Veritatis and in other documents, and even in Laudato Si. It says that we're not trying to replace uh, politics. We're not making scientific judgments. We need to have open and honest debate that it's hard to figure out what the right answer is. And many times we can have great intentions and we end up doing something really disastrous because God didn't give the church a charism to know how to solve medical problems or sewage problems or climate problems. It gave us teachings and faith and morals. And we have to use our brains to kind of figure out the rest. So he seemed to have to admit that, but he's just saying, well, we should just go with their prudential judgment. But I would say, but if I have good reasons to think otherwise, and you can't give me a good reason to think that I'm wrong, why should I? hmm
0: and donis veritatis says that there's times where theologians in the church don't take into account everything right. and i think that we named a variety well of things it says when the mag, it says account.
1: not just theologians it says the magisterium oh ah, there that's you go the, so that's when the bishops are teaching it says not every magisterial document is free from error which would include things like papal encyclicals when then the church wants to teach and it wants to Promote human flourishing. It's not like they're going to never say anything about what we ought to do in the world, but they're going to offer judgments about what's the best course of action. We should give them due consideration and respect, but we can also uh, have sharp disagreements with them if we do so charitably. I would be much more interested in in taking this,
0: this opinion on um, if I saw in some of the documents that they addressed the issue of slave labor, um, rare earth minerals, um, power um, transfer onto a grid, uh, the disposal of batteries, the disposal of spent solar power, the the accounting that we need to make sense of um, uh, the diminishing power that we get from wind and solar as it ages. Like if I saw all those things being addressed, and in the end there is a prudential judgment that one was the way to go, I would be very interested in that. Um, I might take that as a default until I studied over and above the amount that they studied into it, or unless I had a very compelling reason, but I don't see them actually bringing up those issues. Maybe, maybe, you know, of a place that they have, but um, that's the test for me is, are there things that I can point to that they're not taking into account? And then the other economic um, things that we brought in, the changes in the growth rate, the lack of... um, Uh, Ability to to rise up to a global middle class without cheap fossil fuels. If that's not being taken into account, I think that's a good grounds to say that we don't have to accept this particular prudential judgment. Right.
1: There's also a few other, and you can ask me about more about prudential judgments, happy to discuss. But I, I also wanted to bring up some things I may not have shared as much in the dialogue, but I feel like. It's so interesting with Tony, especially, he seems to talk out of both sides of his mouth. Like on the one hand, he'll always say online, renewables are inevitable, they're unstoppable. Uh, the, re- the renewable, solar and wind. But then on the other hand, uh, we have to do a World War II rationing effort to tighten our belts to go fully solar and wind to save the planet. Well, which is it, Tony? Is it they're unstoppable? They're going to be here before we know it? And if you oppose it, you're just out of touch? Or we've got to massively change our lives to combat a threat worse than the Nazis, something like that. It's, it's like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth.
0: Yeah, no, I've definitely noticed that. There are some people who say, well, let's put it to the free market. And I like those people. <laughs> and I generally agree that if solar was legitimately cheaper, um, great. OK, let's do it. Let's make sure that it can compete fairly. And uh, we do need to take into account positive and negative externalities and maybe even price them in so that the market can do its work and move things to its uh, place of highest value. But yeah, that seems incompatible to say that the free market is on the side of deploying this at scale. Oh, and also it's not being deployed at scale. So we need to do it for the market in a command and control way. That seems to be an opposition.
1: Right. Yeah. So I think that Tony might even say, oh, well, fossil fuels are getting all these subsidies. That's why it's not fair. And no, I know I, ha- I, no, I had a slide in my present. I also thought I had fun with that as we were talking to, to bring up my slides continually to show like, no, I'm looking at the data actually here and following it, uh, showing that the the subsidies, according to the General Accounting Office in the U.S., uh, 59% of energy subsidies were to renewables, mm-hmm. uh, not to fossil fuels. The least amount went to nuclear. Uh, so no, they get lots and lots of money for that. The problem is they are always a stopgap measure. They are always a supplement. Uh, there's there is a limit. And I like what you said about marginal costs. That as you try to expand them in areas, that's where you're. You know, you you're right. Like you run solar in Southern California and Phoenix you know, in the Nevada desert, you're going to get a lot, but then you try to do it anywhere else in the country. You're not going to get much. And unless you, what are you going to do? We're going to build all the solar panels in Nevada and Arizona and do spend 80 gajillion dollars on those power lines you mentioned earlier. It's, it's madness. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'd rather see some of that money go to, um, Oh my
0: goodness. Uh, education, uh, healthcare, um farming techniques
1: uh d- direct assistance to the poor um d- well, regime that's, change that's right that's <laughs> the other knows? thing it's this is also it is just never going to happen they 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 price it out i think he said something like a trillion dollars a year or something like that and i said yeah, no i won't do it man. that is not they always underprice these things and to me the biggest example of that so it's not just electric vehicles the other one that i Cannot stand to show you are just an ideologue and not even an ideologue. You're a kind of weepy nostalgic ideologue is the demand to reduce climate change with high speed rail. Mm. It's just, it's just like little boy loves his trains. We get it. I love trains too. When <laughs> I was a kid, I loved going to the San Diego model railroad museum. I love riding trains and I'm in Southern California, but guess what? I recognize trains are a 19th century technology. That are pretty impractical in a geographically diverse and large country like ours. That had a rail system built for freight, not for passengers. Uh, that will not even if you even if you built all the high-speed rail, you spent you know 20 trillion bucks to get all your high-speed rail everywhere in the U.S. All that would do is it would take people who normally use buses and they would use trains. Maybe a few short-haul flights, but hardly any. Uh, so, what let's see? Oh, like with the, um, what was it? How much? I know that in California it was originally $10 billion and now it's like $100 billion. To me, it's just, I could even get behind this. I could even say, you know what? You care about climate. You're worried about climate change. You want to revolutionize public transit. How about a fleet of electric buses? A fleet of electric buses sure. that costs $5 to ride. That one I could at least say, okay. That makes sense, but to me, if you like, if you build, we visit friends in Austin, Texas, sometimes about a three-hour drive away. Odds are, like, if they built a high-speed line from Dallas to Austin, I would not ride it unless it costs less than ten dollars a person, because it's cheaper and easier for me to drive my car. Uh, they're gonna, because like with the California high-speed rail from L.A. to San Francisco, it's gonna be more expensive and take longer than flying on a plane. What? That's an irrational proposition for someone to take that route unless they want a scenic trip and you can't build transit infrastructure based on scenic tourism.
0: So I, I wrote into the um, state government, I'm here in Virginia, and I pointed out that the Virginia light rail network, the cost per passenger mile was more than the cost per passenger mile of driving a brand new Mercedes E-Class with maintenance, fuel, insurance, the the cost of the loan, everything by yourself on a highway that is built and maintained by the state of Virginia. (laughs) So I said, I have an incredible proposal to cut it in half. That is, we buy these new luxury cars for all the people who are currently riding the trains, and then we encourage them to occasionally take a passenger that could cut it in half. And there's $135 million of backlogged maintenance that I didn't put into the calculation. So when people hear that, that the trade-off is we, we, we could just maintain roads and give poor people luxury cars instead of having them right. shuttled about on a bus or, or shuttled about on a train. Um, or like you said, using buses, which people intuitively think are much less efficient than a train. But they're not. Buses are incredible modes of transportation, well, which are uh, unbelievably cost effective.
1: Well, buses are efficient and cost effective because you can get a bus to go almost anywhere you need it to pick up people. So Very flexible. Have, yeah, yep. you can have an express bus. Uh, you, you know, I mean, it would honestly, it'd probably be cheaper if, let's say, on the interstate, you just paved an extra concrete guarded uh, high speed bus lane. Sure. uh, Like if it would still be expensive, but it wouldn't be nearly as expensive as building brand new rail grade for a high speed because high speed rail can't use existing rail in the U.S. because existing rail has to share it with freight. So you have to stop all of the time. There's only a few corridors like in the northeast that are dedicated high speed rail. Everything else, like if you ride Amtrak, you got to stop your train. You get delayed. Because you got to let a freight train on a on a siding or something like that go through. So if they really, I would almost be in favor. Of it, yeah, if people want to, you know, kick back on your seat and just enjoy a trip, and it's air conditioned, you got your internet, and the and the, really the bus goes down the freeway at 90 miles an hour, and there's no traffic. It's in its own lane. I could see that, but it's so funny to me politicians that promote these things. They have this romantic nostalgia for my my choo-choo train and buses. Buses just aren't as sexy as trains. And that's why I can't believe these people. That's the other thing I wanted to get into with Tony is saying, well, we have to follow their prudential judgments. Why? What what expertise does the pope have in transit infrastructure and climatology? Nothing. What? Well, he's following what global leaders are saying. What do the what expertise do these global leaders have? Nothing. The only expertise they have is knowing and how to get elected. So why should I care? what they say. And then you have experts, well, 97% of climate scientists. Yeah, that statistic is manufactured. But even if you granted it, all that means is they agree the earth is warming. You don't get 97% agreement on what we ought to do to combat the warming. That's the issue. If if this whole topic wasn't so infected with ideologues, I would really, really like to brainstorm
0: solutions. But often it's just their own pet policies or their own idealized vision of the future, their own utopian self-aggrandizing virtue signaling yeah. monuments they want to put into place. But there's some actual good things yes. that we could do, like just, you know, just those wind farms in North Dakota. We could use those to to split water into hydrogen, use the hydrogen to power a variety of things. Not everything, but some things. Or we could use the uh, solar farms, which are over in Arizona or out in the deserts of California. Instead of to power a local city, why don't we just have it power a a place to smelt aluminum? That takes an enormous amount of electrical energy. And that would be a good small benefit. Like, there's a lot of easy, interesting things that we could do. But the whole space, all the air sucked out of the room by people who tell us it's the end of the world.
1: And I agree. It's like, no, we can have other ways. Because I agree we ought to do things. But I think if we're going to spend a ton of money, my biggest thing would, yeah, would be spending it on nuclear power plants, electric buses that are subsidized that can take people places. I'm even open to more fanciful uh, approaches to to the issue one of them like when it comes to the ice caps the the arctic polar ice cap uh, asu scientists there are working on machines that would spray water from under the ice and refreeze the the arctic ice caps you'd need like 10 million of them you spend 100 billion dollars on that that could be worthwhile you these machines you know if you, you want to get the stabilized temperatures and regrow the ice caps I think that's an interesting proposal. Let's see it and make it be feasible better than a lot of these other things that will spend a bunch. If we're going to, I'm fine spending a lot of money. If there is a legitimate benefit that can be seen from the outset. And that's a basic economic question. It's not about, Oh, you don't want to spend my own This, I'm fine spending money. I spend money all the time, but like any other rational individual, I want to get what my money's worth. I want to get what's worth what I'm spending.
0: Absolutely. You know, um, you, that's interesting. You mentioned repairing the Arctic. Another kind of spraying solution is buoys in the ocean. And I've actually modeled this out a little bit. My wife and I have, she's a, um, she has her PhD in environmental sciences and there's a significant amount of sunlight, which is actually reflected off of sea spray from waves and mm-hmm. then leaves the atmosphere. So it seems very easy to just put some buoys that spray out a mist over the ocean because it's the salt crystals and then the water itself reflects light back and it reduces the albedo of that surface. So it reduces the amount of heat that we're taking in. Um, I mean, like, boy, would that be easy, scalable, and cheap. And it actually has a fairly large impact when you model it out. There's a lot of things. Um, There's
1: there's one more to discuss, but it's, I don't know. I, I have a bit of torn feeling about this one.
0: Oh, bring it on! Now I'm excited.
1: What yeah. Yeah, is... that be geoengineering. Yeah, I'm...
0: there's some solutions which I think are decent. Yeah,
1: there's I, I'm I'm a little Theory. torn on it. So <laughs> geoengineering, we we put aerosol particles into the air that would reflect sunlight and bring down temperatures. Um, mm-hmm. Now some people they watchers that movie Snowpiercer, which is a, a silly fun movie, uh, with that's just a heavy-handed critique of capitalism uh, about fighting climate change, using geoengineering, accidentally creates an ice age. Everyone has to survive on this train. Weird movie. Like I said, heavy-handed allegory for capitalism. -capitalism. Anti-capitalism. That's trains
0: again, right? Trains. Trains. (laughs) Once again,
1: it's trains. Uh, No, trains in cinema have a long history. People love trains uh, for action scenes and and things in film. And it makes sense. Uh, So the idea is we would do that, and that could lower temperatures by putting stuff in the air. And the the alarmist will say, you're going to cause an ice age. No, that's not going to happen. The bigger concern is you might have climate shock. That if you know it costs billions of dollars a year to put stuff in the air to keep temperatures down. What if 50 years in the future we stop geoengineering for some reason? We the nations of the world can't do it anymore. The temperatures might rise really, really fast, and that could be a danger. Now, for me, I might think oh, I don't. I don't think we'd ever be at a point where we would stop it if we saw that that was producing good effects. But I see once. But I see the the problem. The in, in a lot of solutions, there are hazards and moral hazards we have to watch out for when we propose solutions to things. So, that one I'm a bit on the fence on.
0: Yeah, you know, we do have some natural models of that. I think it's sulfur dioxide that gets sprayed out by volcanoes. And that's one of the proposed things that we put up in the upper atmosphere. So we can look at climatic shifts after large volcanic events right. and get an idea of what would. We... So that gives me a little bit of, of you know, insight, and a little bit of security that we're not going to ruin everything. The yeah. other thing is we could just do it at a very small scale. Right. And then observe it over a long period of time. Another geoengineering technique I think is interesting is throwing limestone into the ocean because <clears> something that we we haven't really brought up is ocean acidification. I think of anything that's scarier than yeah, yeah. climate change because that could hit a point where we have like a wipeout of the ocean and that causes just a cascade of unknown effects. So making sure that the pH of the ocean doesn't um, become too acidic doesn't fall too fast we can basically give it a tumps we can shovel limestone in and that does change the geochemistry but let's not forget that limestone is probably marine organisms from a bazillions of years prior that were floating around at the ocean so something smaller scale like that yeah. Um, I think it'd be very interesting, particularly in areas where we could protect, say, I don't know, uh, coral reefs if they were being impacted from ocean acidification or different types of, um, of, of fish where the, that are a really low tropic level that could cause a mass to die off above them. Yeah, I think that would be a great targeted solution. I think that's great. Well, I, I know that we're running low on yeah. uh, on your time, so uh, let's wrap it on up, but um, I encourage everybody, if they haven't already, to go and view the dialogue. Let me or Trent or both of us or neither of us know what you thought <laughs> and any, any proposed uh, solutions you have, and I'd certainly encourage listeners to ask the basic economic question compared to what because things have costs and uh that we don't have unlimited resources so there's a lot of ways we can help our neighbor that aren't just stopping the next ton of carbon from entering the atmosphere particularly when there's a lot of people who are in terrible need all right well did you have any uh last words no i think i'm good
1: thanks for referencing the um uh the dialogue. I hope people will check it out and they can check out more of my material at uh, trendhornpodcast.com.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Trent. Thank Bye. you.